Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's session on how Verizon is moving mission-critical databases to RDS with zero downtime. My name is Sandeep Carrillo. I'm an AWS solutions architect working with um, Verizon for almost a year now. Joining me on the stage today um, for the presentation are two senior database engineers from Verizon, Sandeep Aluri and Srinivas Sodagam. The team's main focus has been automation, engineering, and migration to AWS. So before Sandeep and Srinivas start talking about their migration approach, I just wanted to give you guys a little bit background on their journey on how they started, how Verizon started. Uh, so we had a first meeting with them around December 2016 is when they started looking at AWS as a platform to migrate their workloads, both mission critical as well as business critical into AWS. Uh, around June timeframe, they decided, hey, we want to look at the open source systems first to see can we migrate these databases over to open source uh, with less pain and quickly. Uh, so they started evaluating open source systems by April 2018. Uh, they had a mandate uh, saying that all the applications would move to AWS, remodernize it, make sure everything is, is replatformed onto open source, and that was the mandate given. Uh, in addition to that, the ask was, hey, we are also closing the data centers, right? So if we are closing the data centers, make sure you're not taking too much time migrating these applications over to AWS. So they started looking at it. They figured uh, by end of 2018, they figured um, they don't want to replatform everything. They want to use all the RDS uh, uh, database systems that are available on AWS as a managed service and try to do migrations with less of replatforming mainly because of the reason that they have to close the data centers as well, right? So, so that was the thought. So by end of 2018, they figured, hey, let's start migrating all our non-prod systems to AWS. Uh, that's what they started doing. Uh, starting 2019, they started looking at migrating their production systems onto AWS, which are like mission-critical systems. So the way they code mission-critical systems is are all the customer-facing uh, uh, websites, applications, point of sales, everything is mission critical. All those, they decided, hey, let's move them to either RDS Oracle, RDS SQL Server, or something RDS, but don't replatform it. So that way, uh, we are able to move the systems on time, and also, um, it's, it's seamless, it's smooth. We are not putting a lot of impact on our mission critical systems. With that, we're going to start the presentation. I'm going to invite Sandeep Aluri to get started here uh, with your journey. Thank you, Sandeep, for the introduction. Hey, guys, this is Sandeep. I'm going to go through the agenda first. We'll start with how we classify applications at Verizon, then go into the on-premise system architecture, then talk about the overall cloud migration approach for those applications. 
and then go into the security requirements put in by the Verizon security and the governance teams. Then the actual migration strategy on how we achieved zero downtime. We have done that in three states, build, transition, and end state. And my colleague Srinivas is gonna talk about what a hub architecture is, how we deployed it in production, and then the performance testing we have performed before actually taking these applications live, and the overall lessons learned and technical challenges with the RDS platform, and the key takeaways with the overall cloud migration. So, going into the classification of applications, right? So we classified our applications into three kinds, mission critical, business critical, and non-critical. For the sake of the talk today, I'm just gonna talk about what we have done with our mission critical and business critical applications. So starting with mission critical applications, right? So these are the applications which serve the e-commerce, point of sale, the self-service, the billing functions, and the endpoints, how the customers interact with with Verizon as a business, right? So these are the revenue generating channels. So for these applications, the ask is to have them highly available within a data center, so have redundancy built in each layer, the database layer, application layer, and the network layer, and also have the applications available actively across multiple data centers. I'm gonna walk through the detailed architecture in the next slides. And the RTO and the RPO requirements for these applications are within 15 minutes. Moving on into business critical applications, these are the applications supporting the internal business functions, meaning uh, the HR systems, the finance systems, right? So for these, we have the active-passive architecture, so only one site is active at all times, and in the case of a disaster, we would do a failover for the DR site. And the RTO and the RPO requirements are within four hours for these. Now going into the architecture currently on-prem, right? So we have three data centers on-premise, and we have the same application running across all the three data centers. Based on where the customer request originates, the traffic is redirected to the closest data center, right? For us to be able to support an application running in three sites actively, the need is to have a multi-master database, meaning the database has to be open for read and write across all sites. So we use replication software to keep the data in sync, and when we talk about using multi-master and active-active replication, there is a conflict resolution piece, right? So we do set up procedures in place based on each application. Let's say there are simultaneous updates coming from the application on two sides. We handle them uh, based on the logic provided by the application teams, which update gets the preference. And one thing to notice, let's say there is an issue, right, in one of the data centers, be it in the database layer, application layer, or any system layer. The load balancers are intelligent enough to detect that failure, and they'll be routing the traffic to the other available data centers, right? So this gives the capability of even performing releases by taking one data center out of rotation, meaning disabling the traffic, uh, deploy the code, and move the traffic over to the other data centers. Moving into business critical applications, as I said, we have an active passive setup, and the Application traffic is always by default routed to the active site, and in case of any disaster, the passive site takes the traffic. The database is still open, even in the passive state, it's just that we have a one-way replication setup, and in case of a failure, we fail back the traffic to passive. And based on the kind of failure, either be it at a database layer or a system layer, we try to restore the service back and bring the traffic back. Now going into overall approach, right? Sandeep briefly talked about it. So the end goal 
for Verizon is to migrate all our relational commercial database engines into Aurora Postgres. But when we started evaluating the refactoring, right, from uh, commercial engine to Aurora Postgres, we realized it's a challenging and a hard path. There are still technologies coming up to how to support replication across cross databases and many other things we need to figure it out. So we did not want to go that route given the timelines of having a data center shutdown coming up. We decided to migrate all the mission critical applications using a lift and shift mode, meaning we migrated the database engines as is to AWS, either be it an RDS or EC2. Again, based on the characteristics of the database, the size, the features that are supported on RDS. And then for the business critical applications, over the last year we migrated around 10 to 15 systems in production. We did do a refactor. And there are some features we are still waiting for in the Aurora Postgres world to have the mission critical applications migrated. So even for the mission critical applications, the migration approach we have taken is N plus one, meaning N being the number of data centers and one being the region in AWS. The plan is to build the same infrastructure in one AWS region, have the application run there, get it certified, make sure it's functioning equivalent to what we have on-prem, or if not better, and then come back and shut down the data center on-prem. And also for any new applications that are being deployed, if they're cloud-native applications, we're directly putting them in uh, Aurora Postgres, whereas if there are legacy applications and they, are, uh, they do not have the timeline to wait to actually uh, build it in multi-region, we are going with an RDS option and deploying across the AWS regions. Now, the important thing is, right, so when we talk about migrating to cloud, what are the security requirements? So Verizon uh, Security has provided a list of guidelines. I'm just gonna highlight a few of them. First thing is, um, all the data that is stored at rest should be KMS key enabled. So each application would be creating their own customer managed KMS key. And if there is a service provided by Amazon which does not support KMS keys, we are not allowed to use the service. We can never deploy such services. And then all the traffic, uh, from the load balancer to the EC2 should be encrypted. So the traffic between the application and the databases should be SSL enabled, and even the replication traffic between the um, RDS systems and the on-prem databases uh, should be SSL enabled. So that is something we had to work with our replication vendors as they were not supporting at the time we planned to migrate. So we had to work with them over a multiple month period and make sure that is supported before we actually migrated, right? Another one is any data that is being stored in the database, the credit card data has to be tokenized before we start the migration to AWS. And we have global teams supporting our databases and applications throughout the globe. We already currently have a process set up on how they access the data, what kind of access they have to the data or the applications. So the same process has to be carried over even into AWS. Equivalent process or the process might be a little different, maybe setting up security groups, net groups, creating firewalls, but the same control should be in place for the applications when we migrate to AWS. And another important thing is we are only allowed to create the EC2 instances based off AMIs provided by Verizon Security and Governance. The engineering teams at Verizon, they basically publish a base AMI, which has the basic audit, security, and logging requirements. And based on the application needs, we can still create our own AMIs, but those AMIs have to be on top of the uh, AMI provided by Verizon security and governance teams. 
And also, we have a lifecycle policy for these AMIs. These AMIs get published every month. And the ask is to have the instances rebuilt every 90 days so that we get the latest bug fixes, security fixes. And if we do not adhere to this lifecycle policy, the instances would be terminated, right? So it's very important to have the automation built in to basically rebuild your instances every 90 days and do not impact the applications. Now, going into what are the key requirements provided by the business when we do a cloud migration, right? So our mission-critical applications are running 24 by 7, 365. We have to have these applications running all the time. We need to have a high availability built in in each region, meaning have a multi-AZ deployment, and also build the high availability across the region or either fail it back to the on-premise data centers, right? So how do we do it? We need to ensure the data replication is set up from AWS back to on-prem. And the replication should be near real time, meaning let's say there is a failed transaction. It should be, the customer should be able to continue with the transaction when he relogs in, right? So the requirement is to have the near real time data sync up or within a few seconds, the data should be available uh, in a bi-directional way, right? So the most important piece when we talk about database migration is migrating our data. So we have a checklist. These are a few of the main items, right? The first one is, Purge the data before migration, or we call it trim the fat. Try to actually take the data that's absolutely needed for your application to function. Do not carry forward your audit data, log data, or if there is data that's being retained for any compliance reasons, we try to keep it on-prem and have, these, have those kind of applications or you know, the compliance requirements come back to our on-prem data centers. And then the next one is to provide this multi-site ability or to provide this data replication across all sites, we tend to keep adding the tables into the replication, and over a period of time, the replication streams are going to be, let's say if there is a latency in one update going there, it might impact the other table, right? So we try to minimize the amount of data being replicated, meaning going back and looking at, okay, is this data really being used by the application in a you know, active, active mode, right? So we cleaned up that. The next important item is we have a lot of bad jobs specific to the database engine. As the end goal is to migrate to Aurora Postgres, we took this time to actually convert those bad jobs into an ETL job so that it actually would be easier when we do the database refactor, right? If not, we have to come back and basically rewrite all those DB-specific jobs. When we move to ETL, with a minimal amount of changes, we are able to migrate them, okay? And again, depending on the timeline, there are a few cases where we had to take them as is, and in some cases, we tried to rewrite them into an ETL code. The next one is sharding the databases based on usage. There were cases where uh, Amazon RDS only supports 64 terabytes, right? So there are a few big databases that we had to migrate. So to accommodate that and also to make our databases lean in cloud, we try to segregate them. Let's say if it's a reporting database, we created its own database, had its own um, uh, schemas and all that. And if it's a transactional database, we created its own database. So we basically uh, looked at the functionality of the application and tried to shard them based on the usage, right? The last one is interleaved sequences. What are these? So for us to be able to replicate the data across multiple sites, how do we manage our sequencing logic, right? So let's say we have three data centers. We would start the sequences with 101, 102, and 103, respectively, and then increment the sequence by the number of data centers. In this case, it is three. So it would be 101 plus three, 102 plus three, and 103 plus three. That way, there will not be any collisions. So let's say we have four data centers 
we would increment it by four. Okay, so that's how we set up our sequences for the uh, uh, active-active replication. So why did we choose RDS, right? As I talked about having high availability within a region, so RDS provides the multi-AZ configuration. So for all the mission-critical applications we deployed in production, we went with the multi-AZ setup. And for all the mission-critical applications, we tend to see high traffic during holiday sales like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, or any major phone launches, right? So traditionally on on-prem, we have to provision the hardware for the peak capacity, right? For the peak traffic we are expecting to see. But when we move into RDS, we actually, based out of the normal day load, we created our instances. And based on the feedback we got from business on, okay, this is the expected volume of traffic based on the sales they're putting in there, we would go ahead and resize the instances, right? Just before the event, we would resize the instances. And after the event, we would scale it down. Even for the IOPS, we went with provisioned IOPS for all the mission-critical databases. We wanted to get guaranteed IOPS. We would also, based on the demand, we would either bring it up based on the expected traffic and then bring them down once the uh, traffic uh, comes back to the regular day. Sandeep, you want to add something on how other customers handle the IOPS? Hey, can you turn mic one on, please? Can you hear me now? All right, perfect. So a um, lot of customers ask us, hey, we want to do provisioned IOPS, but that should not be our starting point, right? Can we do general purpose, and can we still guarantee the IOPS? And the answer is yes. If you're doing general purpose, you get three IOPS per gigabyte. So you have to design your storage accordingly and say, hey, if I want a one terabyte database, I'm guaranteeing 3,000 IOPS right there. So that's, that's how you should calculate and figure out. You can still use general purpose, but in this case, Verizon just decided they want to go with provision because these are their really, really mission critical applications. So just wanted to add that in here. Thank ahead, you, please. Can you hear me? Okay, thank you. So the next ones, right? So auto space management and automated backups instead of you know, managing your backups manually or archaeolog space management or the trace files that is again available during the creation of the instance. We can set them up and let the RDS service take care of it. And automated failover, meaning let's say an AZ goes down, the RDS service automatically, the endpoints gets pointed to the standby instance and that becomes active. And the last one is the upgrade, right? This is one of the critical things we as database administrators do, applying the patches, keeping them up to date, or performing the database upgrades, which is a manual and a tedious task, I would say. So uh, with RDS, we can basically do minor and major version upgrades. But for the mission-critical databases, we tend to disable the auto maintenance window minor upgrades and have it done in a controlled manner. But this is something, by click of a button, we could basically upgrade our instances right now. Going into the actual cloud migration, how we performed it, uh, right? Starting with the build state. So this is the first state in which we would build our infrastructure in the region, right, in the AWS region. So we would go ahead and create our databases, the security groups needed for the application to access, have them validated. And the next step is to migrate the data. So from one of the on-premise data centers, 
There are multiple ways we migrated data, but the most common method for all the mission-critical databases is a time-based export, meaning we would take an export from the on-premise data centers based on time. At the same time, also set up the replication stream from the uh, on-prem data center to AWS, have those processes at the stopped state. And once the import is done on the AWS RDS instances, we would reconcile the replication and have the data posted. This way, once the import is done and once we have the replication set up, the data is always in sync from the on-premise data centers to the RDS instance. There are ways where, even though we tried to trim the fat, uh, there were certain cases where we had to copy very large audit tables or logging tables. In that case, we used DMS with multi-threading, which performed better than the traditional methods of doing an uh, export and import. And also for some applications, when there is a need to basically massage any data, right, or uh, combine data from multiple tables, do some trans uh, transform the data, we used ETL tools we currently use on-prem. So by end of the state, we have the databases created in one region, and we have a data replication set up. So going into the next state, right? So this is the state in where we'll have the uh, application code deployed, right? And then enable the bidirectional replication from the RDS instance on AWS back to data centers on-prem. And we wanted to use this state to have the application certified before we take the live customer traffic. So at the network level, we would enable a rule saying only allow the users who are accessing it within the Verizon network. So basically use it for our UAT testing, functional testing, right? We do it over a period of time and make sure we catch any issues. We are not putting any real customers at risk by launching the application, right? And then also perform a load test, right, or stress test. Srinivas is gonna to touch upon what we do in that space. So by end of the state, we have the application certified, ready to go, and we have the performance testing team run the required uh, number of tests and, and give a sign off on, you're all good to go. So the next state. So this is a state, end state, right? <clears throat> the main idea behind the zero downtime configuration is because of the current architecture we have on-prem, we are able to extend it to AWS, right? So the only change we make on the day of going live or launching it to the customers is enable the external traffic, right? Even that, we try to do it in a throttle mode, meaning enable it to a particular state or a particular region, and don't slowly ramp it up. So after running it for a few days or a week or so, once we realize, okay, the application is functioning as expected, right? Then we would disable the replication back to the data center on-prem, shut down the database, and then have the state back to three sites. That's why you call it N plus one and minus one. Let's say in case, before we do that, we realize there is an issue either at the AWS region level or with our applications running in AWS. The only thing we need to do is disable the traffic that's flowing to AWS and have the traffic routed back to on-prem. So this way, the backout strategy is just disabling the traffic, right? So the important thing, again, I want to stress is that the reason why we are able to achieve this configuration is because of the way we architected our systems on-prem, and we're trying to extend the same architecture onto AWS when we migrate. Now, I'm going to hand it over to Srinivas, who's going to talk about what a hub is and how we deployed it in production. Hey, uh, thank you, Sandeep. Uh, you can hear me, right? Okay, cool, thank you. 
So my name is Srinivas uh, Sodagam. Uh, I'm going to talk about the hub architecture. So let me give you a background. Like Sandeep has spent more time on talking about the on-premise architecture, like the multi-data centers, uh, the N plus one architecture, and the uh, how we actually migrated our databases into the cloud. I'm going to talk more on the AWS side how we created, using the various AWS services, a high availability architecture in the cloud. So let's get started. Uh, as we all know, the Amazon RDS uh, does not have host access. So we need an EC2 instance to support our replication traffic, uh, nightly batch loads, any kind of a custom monitoring that you might have, like basically your cron tap, and for all your reporting needs. Uh, Amazon RDS, when we select the multi-AZ, provides a high availability solution out of the box, meaning to say you have one AZ, uh, one the primary RDS on AZ1, and the standby on another AZ. From the replication standpoint, most of our applications heavily rely on the replication data. If they do not have real-time uh, replication data, there is a possibility that some of the functionality of the application is impacted. So keeping all of these things in mind, we thought, okay, we need to have a high availability solution for our EC2 replication instances as well. And that's where the hub came into the picture. So here is a snap of the hub architecture. Uh, on the left, you're gonna see uh, the on-premise data centers, the data center A and data center B, with in active replication with uh, AWS uh, in the cloud. So I'm gonna talk about, uh, in detail, all the various services, components that we have used in the architecture. So the hub primarily consists of two EC2 instances. Uh, the primary EC2, which is in the same AZ as the RDS primary, and a second one, uh, EC2, the pilot light, which is in the same one, same uh, AZ as the standby RDS. So the primary EC2 instance is a scaled up version, a more powerful uh, EC2 instance because it's taking all of your replication traffic, uh, all your nightly batch loads, uh, your monitoring scripts, et cetera, is all handled by the primary EC2. The pilot light on the other hand is a scaled down version, pretty much a base instance and is only there as a backup for the primary EC2. Uh, the other service that I want to talk about is the Elastic file system, the EFS. It's mounted both on the primary and on the pilot light as well. And we have installed all the replication software, uh, the log directories, uh, the binaries, uh, the data directory, everything, everything is part of the, is installed on the Elastic file system. Uh, the reason for that is, let's say your primary AZ goes down, we could quickly scale up the pilot light EC2 and bring up the replication software on the pilot light, and it will pick up the transactions where it left off when it was up and running on the primary and start applying those transactions to the RDS. So you're not losing any replicated transactions with this kind of a setup. So that's where the EFS uh, comes in pretty handy. The other uh, services that I want to talk about is the Elastic Network Interface, uh, ENI with DNS on the primary uh, instance, and the ENI on the pilot light. So let me start with DNS first. So the DNS uh, is, has two cases here, uh, two advantages. One is 
it would simplify your network con uh, replication configuration on-premise where you could actually use a proper naming convention for your application uh, instead of a, an IP address. That would simplify things. And also, in case of a failover, we could actually point the DNS onto the pilot light ENI, and the replication traffic will start diverted to the pilot light EC2. And you're practically not making any changes on the on-prem replication configuration itself. So those are the two advantages of uh, using DNS. ENI, uh, Elastic Network Interface, on the other hand, uh, primarily is used for something called rehydration. Sandeep has already touched up on the AMI lifecycle policy that we have, where we are forced to uh, rehydrate our EC2 instances every 90 days. That's where the ENI comes in handy, where you plug out the ENI from the primary EC2 and plug it onto the new EC2 that you just pinned off. I'm going to talk about the rehydration detail in a couple of slides. So, moving on to the next one. Here is a snap of the production hub architecture. This is how our production is going to look like, uh, here, the snap of it. As you can see, the elastic nature of the hub, uh, you could scale up your EC2 instance, you could scale it down based on how much traffic that it is supporting. So here we are seeing that it is supporting three RDS instances, right? So the idea was to have minimum number of hubs and also support multiple RDS instances so that we, we do have less maintenance in the cloud as well. Uh, and so with that, actually, uh, in some of our production case uh, instances, we actually support four to five RDS instances with one hub. So, and the Amazon EFS performance and throughput modes, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. The Elastic uh, file system, right, has two performance modes and two throughput modes. The two performance modes are uh, general purpose and max IO. Max IO is more for a heavy data load, uh, like a big data kind of a scenario, and, uh, but at a higher uh, latency. The general purpose on the other side uh, is suitable for lighter loads, but, but with a very good latency performance. So we went with general purpose for all our production uh, EFS uh, hub architectures. The, the throughput modes, again, it has two throughput modes. Um, one is the bursting mode, and the other one is the provisioned throughput mode. The bursting mode has a, does not have a consistent peak IOPS performance. Uh, it, you'll get it in, in bursts. So that would not really uh, help us with our production workloads. So we went with the provision throughput mode where we actually control the amount of IOPS we need. So if we are supporting more, uh, we are adding more replication traffic, we could actually bump up the IOPS and the EFS and so on. So in, in some of the cases, we actually also have seen that, let's say if your primary EC2 uh, is getting overwhelmed, right? we could offload some of the compute onto the pilot light as well. Like probably some of your simpler, uh, nightly lighter batch loads or for any of your reporting needs, et cetera. Moving on. The hub architecture rehydration. The Verizon governance and security team have, uh, they actually publish a brand new AMI every month for all of our OS flavors with all the latest security patches, uh, the latest updates. 
etc. So, and it is mandatory for us who are all using the EC2 instances to rebuild our all the EC2 instances with the newly published AMI for that particular month, and we are good for 90 days. And again, we re, we redo this every 90 days to rebuild our all of our EC2 instances. Uh, so for this, we actually created a fully automated jobs using Jenkins, uh, Ansible, AWS CLI, and some shell scripts as well. So we actually follow a process here uh, wherein we rehydrate our pilot light instances first, make sure things are working fine, we're not running into any major surprises or any kind of issues, and then we go and use the same job to rehydrate our primary EC2 instances. So the same job would work for both the both uh, types of instances. So the job will take care of all carrying forward all of your current configurations, uh, like the size of the your EC2 instance, uh, the security groups, or the region where you currently have your EC2 up and running. All that is carried on to the new EC2 that is rebuilt. And also in case of a failure the volumes can always be attached back to the previous instance for backout purposes. Let me go over the automation uh, at a high level. So we pass the EC2 IP uh, to this automation, whichever one you want to rehydrate. So it'll capture all the information like region size, your security groups, and so on. It will shut down the replication software if it is up and running on that particular EC2. It'll capture the EBS volumes, EFS, ENI information, and so on. It will unmount the volumes on that uh, EBS volumes on that instance, and then it will kick off the CI/CD plugin. The CI/CD plugin is actually provided by the Verizon governance team. It's a Jenkins uh, plugin. We do have a few more uh, that we normally use in all our automations, wherein we pass in a cloud formation template, and then it will spit out uh, EC2 instance. So the job kicks off that particular plugin, the CI/CD plugin which creates a brand new EC2 instance with the latest AMI for that, the, that is current for that particular month. So once the instance is up, uh, all the required software is installed. Uh, the, we detach and attach the EBS volumes on, from the original instance, uh, mount all of them back onto the new EC2 instance that was just created, bring up the replication software, and perform the final validations. So this Automation takes about 30 minutes for the entire thing to complete from end to end. And we actually follow the Verizon uh, change control uh, window because this is an outage for us for the 30 minutes. And so we do it as a part of the change control window. So moving on. Performance and resiliency testing. This is probably one of the most uh, criti uh, critical step in our cloud journey which would certify all the various services that we have created, instances that we have spun up in the cloud are ready for production workloads. So how did we accomplish this, right? So we ran multiple iterations of these performance tests on our EC2 RDS instances. Uh, we monitor uh, these tests using CloudWatch, APM, and other tools. And then we analyze the results. We take a look at how the queries were performing. How was the CPU on the RDS instance? How was the storage latency? How was the IOPS? We do the similar uh, testing on the hub architecture as well. We take a look at how the EFS was performing. Was it able to keep up with the replication traffic? How was the 
CPU of the EC2 instance as well. So once we take a look at that, and we would probably scale the RDS and scale the EC2 as needed. And also we modify the IOPS of EFS if needed, uh, if it's not able to keep up with the replication traffic, of course. So we repeat this cycle multiple times till we are at a state where we are ready. Uh, our uh, the instances are right-sized for production readiness and cost optimized. So the last item on this list is the resiliency test. So we, as a part of this test, we actually simulate a failover of the availability zone. So how do we do that? We shut down the primary RDS instance and take a look at how the application is behaving in that scenario. We found two cases. In case one, the application seamlessly failed over to the, uh, the surviving uh, RDS instance, and pretty much everything was BAU. There were some cases where the JVMs went into a hung state. So we had to force a recycle for them so that they can go and connect to the, uh, to the surviving RDS instance. We did a similar test uh, for the hub architecture as well. Make sure we shut down the primary EC2 instance, scale up the pilot light, try to bring up the replication software, and see if it is picking up the transactions where it left off and start supplying to the RDS instance smoothly without, lose of, uh, without losing any replicated transactions. So these are the different kinds of tests that we actually performed before going live to test our instances, not, not just the instances and, uh, and other things, but ourselves as well, so that we are familiar with the steps that we need to follow, the processes, that, uh, the procedures that we need to uh, follow to make sure that we are ready for in the event of a crisis. Database and replication monitoring. So we actually went with a custom uh, approach for this, where a hybrid approach for this, uh, for the monitoring of all our uh, databases and replication in the cloud. So we have subscribed for uh, multiple RDS events, uh, like uh, RDS failover, uh, low storage on the RDS, any kind of uh, backup, uh, backup, nightly backups, and patching, and so on. The Amazon CloudWatch, on the other hand, we use it to monitor the performance uh, of the RDS instance, how is the CPU performance, uh, the database connections, the IOPS, basically, the latency of the, uh, of the storage, and so on. Apart from that, we do have a lot of custom monitoring scripts uh, on-premise to monitor our replication traffic if the replication is up and running, if there is any kind of a backlog in the replication. All that we carried over to the Amazon uh, AWS as well to monitor our replication in the cloud. The last one is the application performance monitoring tools, the APM tools. So we have actually started uh, creating a lot of dashboards uh, to monitor the application performance, to monitor the middleware components, monitor the database components as well using the APM tools. So the idea was to have a single pane of glass to monitor the entire application from end to end in one place. So with that, I'm going to conclude my part of the talk and call Sandeep back on stage, who's going to talk about the lessons learned and key technical challenges. Thank you. Thank you, Srinivas. So I'm going to walk through what are the lessons learned with our journey to RDS, right? The first one is RDS is internally provisioning one EBS volume if the size is below 200 GB. 
and let's say if we do a resize to something above 200 GB, it's internally provisioning four EBS volumes. So the amount of time it takes for you to do a resize from below to above 200 GB is much longer than what it normally is, right? So for all the mission-critical databases, we tend to keep them above 200 GB, so we would never hit that threshold. Actually, it took us more than an hour in some cases to do the resize. The next one, choosing the instances and the IOPS. Srinivas already talked about what we did on that space. Even before we started building our instances for the mission-critical databases, we worked with the AWS teams to do a well-architected review, meaning we provided our uh, on-premise system footprint, the current uh, configurations at the system level, what kind of an application, what is a regular day traffic versus what is a peak load we would expect during any sales or any holiday launches, right? Based on that, they provide an initial recommendation of what they would think application would need. So that's where we started off with. And again, running these multiple iterations of test, we achieved the optimal config. And also, if the application is gonna run in AWS for a period of over a year, we try to make use of the RI credits, meaning reserved instances. So we try to purchase RI credits needed for the instances we have deployed in AWS and also so that we can basically keep the cost low, right? Restarting the client connections, yeah, as Srinivas again touched upon it, there are multiple applications where we had to alter the retry logic, meaning let's say there is a failover of the RDS instance. A few applications were uh, automatically connecting to it, but for some applications, we had to take an action of introducing a retry logic after 60 seconds or after one and a half minutes so that they would automatically reconnect. Going into issues, so for all the mission-critical databases, we disable the auto maintenance window, I mean the maintenance window which does the auto minor upgrades. But for an RDS instance, if your option group has a JVM option enabled, we are not able to disable that, right? So it is doing the minor upgrades every month or so. So we tried to work with the AWS team on if we could disable that and even control that, way, that piece. Yeah, we have a highly available architecture, but initially, as we started off migrating the RDS databases in the last few months, we deployed around 15 critical applications by August. So we wanted to control when we do the upgrades. The reason being, there were cases where some of the replication software were complaining after we do this minor patching upgrade, so we had to work with the replication vendors to get uh, a fix for that. So we tried to control that and actually upgrade in a controlled mode once we test it out on the non-production environment. So that's something we're trying to work with AWS on. And another item is one-off patches. There are a few applications which were hitting a specific database bug, and we did not want to go to a complete different patch set and apply the whole set of patches. So we are still working with Amazon. Whenever we hit any issues, we try to work with the Amazon support folks, AWS support folks, and get the necessary fixes. But it would be nice to have an ability to apply and request a one-off patch you know, uh, through the RDS service itself. Going into what would help us run our databases better in AWS and have us migrate more databases faster into AWS, right? The first thing I would say is enhance monitoring for the database level. Yes, they have a tool called Performance Insight, which provides uh, database monitoring, but currently, <clears throat> let's say there is a long-running query, right? For us to debug 
at a much faster pace. We are looking for a feature where we can see for a particular SQL the uh, buffer gets or the elapsed time, what is the SQL plan that's being used, our ability to run performance reports through these performance insights, and also the ability to create a SQL profile and actually force a particular SQL plan to a particular SQL. So those are some things we are looking for, which would help us basically debug the issues at a faster pace, right? And then patch updates, we already talked about it in the previous slide. The ability to choose a particular patch to be applied rather than applying the whole, uh, the monthly or the uh, quarterly patch set, right? And the next one, yeah, there were a few cases where if a monitoring agent within the AWS is not able to reach the EC2 instance, it was triggering a failover to the other AZ. So we get an RDS event when the actual failover happens. We are looking for some kind of notification, proactively sending it out saying, hey, there is a health check failure on the underlying EC2 instance of the RDS, so we are going to trigger a failover within, let's say, 30 seconds or a minute so that we could react faster rather than actually after having the failover, go checking the, if the applications have come up clean, if everything is functioning fine, right? And we also used uh, read replicas within a region. There are a few use cases where we are looking for cross-region read, read replicas, right? And the last one is ability to bring our own certificates, right? Currently, there is only one certificate provided for all the databases, be it non-prod, prod, we want to have an ability to create our certificates, set the expiration policy, uh, so that we get better control, right, on who has access to the instances. And Sandeep has a few things to share on what's coming up uh, on the RDS. Can you guys hear me okay? So thank you, Sandeep, for uh, sharing all the challenges as well as the requirements for RDS. Um, I just wanted to quickly share with you guys, uh, on the RDS side, we are constantly working on adding new features, trying to make life easy for the customer based on the feedback we receive from the customer, right? So I'm just going to share quickly uh, some of the, the future requirements that Sandeep Aluri shared here um, are covered in here in addition to what other things we have done this year, right? So there is more coming up. But this year, um, the security patches obviously are required to be applied on time. So every quarter we applied those patches on time. Um, going on to the different instance types that we um, support, we added T3 support, which is a cheaper um, instance type. It's a burstable general purpose instance type that is very useful for moderate workloads that has spiky nature. So if you want burst every now and then, uh, but normally you have a very stable traffic, T3 would be the way to go uh, going forward. So something to look at uh, uh, for, for your future workloads. Um, Z1Ds, Z1Ds are um, new instance types that are supported on RDS. Uh, Z1Ds have been there since June 2018. Uh, but RDS started supporting them in Q2 2019. Uh, they have faster clock speeds. That simply means that um, if you have certain use cases like a gaming application where, where you require more clock speed, um, you can reduce the number of CPUs and 
you can get better performance on those applications using Z1D um, instance types. In Q3, we um, deprecated M3s and R3s. So the only thing you would see um, in the console is M4, M5, and R4, R5 support. And this is going to continue going forward as well. As we add more, we are going to deprecate the old ones uh, going forward as well. Um, on the feature launches, uh, we started supporting these versions. I'm not going to go into detail, uh, but I'm, I am going to point out that X1 and X1Es that you see in Q3 2019 uh, we added more regions for that. And X1s and X1Es are the bigger instance types with more memory in there. Uh, they were supported in only some regions. We added some more in Q3. The one big ask customers had was, hey, there is no S3 integration with RDS Oracle. Uh, there is integration in Aurora, but not in RDS. So uh, we added that capability uh, what that gives you is basically you don't need another instance type to uh, create a network link to move the data like a data pump export or uh, RMAN uh, backup um, to put it onto the instance, RDS instance. You can just push it to S3, and from S3 using um, stored Oracle procedures, you can directly uh, download it onto the RDS instance for recoveries and whatnot. Uh, performance Insights, we are constantly working on adding more uh, matrix in there. Uh, that was one of uh, Sandeep's ask as well. Uh, we do have new counter metrics added. You can add up to another 10 graphs to your dashboard. Uh, that'll show you uh, performance for the database as well as operating system statistics. So all that is, is added. Uh, maybe there is more that we need to work with you guys and figure out what is missing and start adding those as well. We also added uh, the elapsed time for the SQL execution uh, and the explained plans. You can see them in uh, Performance Insights. Uh, storage autoscaling was another ask. Uh, so basically, if you put it in autoscale mode, it's pretty much uh, RDS is taking care of making sure it's extending your storage as you need it. Uh, and the way it works is uh, it's a 10% threshold. If you have 10% storage space remaining, uh, it'll check that space for another five minutes. And in five minutes, if the storage space does not go below 10%, uh, it adds more space. And the way it adds is it's going to either add five gigabytes or it's going to add 12% of the current storage space, which, whichever is max uh, is, is what gets added in there. And that's how it it scales automatically. Active Directory integration is also the ask. So external users can now be authenticated using Kerberos uh, Active Directory authentication on RDS Oracle starting Q3 2019. Uh, last couple of things I want to add in here. Data Guard support was a must. A lot of customers wanted it. Uh, we added Data Guard in region uh, read replicas in Q1, and we continue to work on it to provide that support cross-region in Q4. We release that as well. It's already released. You guys can use it uh, going forward. The last one is um, adding more provisioned IOPS. So we had 
uh, about 40K provisioned IOPS and 16 terabytes max storage space. That has changed now for RDS Oracle. Uh, starting Q2 2019, 80,000 provisioned IOPS and 64 terabytes. Um, and you'll continue to see things changing going forward uh, in this space. With that, I'll pass it back to Sandeep. Um, Thank you. So what are the key takeaways with the overall cloud migration journey we've been on the past couple of years, right? First one, we call it one size does not fit all, meaning there is no one way to migrate your workloads to AWS. It all depends on what is your current on-premise architecture? What are you planning to do? Is it going to be a lift and shift? Do a complete redesign, refactor, build it cloud native? So based on many factors, the approach is going to be different, right, for each classified applications. Next one is conducting dry runs. Just to ensure we are actually not deploying applications and putting them, uh, making them available for the customers to actually access it. So we, we went through multiple dry runs, making sure we have the functional testing done, UAT testing done, and also then measure the performance. Comparing with on-prem, the system architecture is different, the storage layer, the network layer, there are many other components, right? So we had to go through these multiple iterations, again, of performance tests, right-size them. Yes, cloud provides an ability to scale your instances when needed, but even the cost is a factor. So plan on how to, how to still make it cost efficient, right? And the last one and the most important one I would say is security. When we are migrating our data to cloud, we have to really be careful of what we are putting in there, right? So it's not only important to have processes and procedures in place to do the initial security checks, but it should be a continuous process. So every week we deploy code. So we need to have the code vulnerability scans run. Uh, every week they might inserting new data for a new application. So how do we make sure we are not putting data that's not supposed to be in there? Are we encrypting it? Are we tokenizing it? So these are all continuous process that we have to have run. And based on the results, we should be able to act upon them, right? So overall, Amazon has, or AWS has provided great tools to have the cloud migration doable. But it is far from seamless. They are continuously upgrading or releasing new tools to help the customers move to AWS. But the success of the migration would basically depend upon the preparation we do ahead of time. With that, I'm going to hand it back to Sandeep. Thank you for coming to the session. Thank you, uh, Sandeep and Srinivas, for sharing your story. And thank you all for coming here. Hopefully, this uh, session was useful for you guys. Uh, we all are available offline if you guys want to talk to us about your migrations, your journey, uh, any challenges you're facing that you want to talk to us about. We are available here. We do request to fill out the survey. So we know you like this session, or we need to improve more on it next time. Uh, thank you very much. and. Have a good time at reInvent. Thank you.